Hello everyone, this is Maz. If you're hearing this message, it means you're not part of the Voices of War subscriber community and will only hear the first half of the episode. If that's enough, then I'm thrilled. However, if you're looking to dive deeper into the complexities of war, please consider subscribing to our private feed by using the link at the top of the show notes. By doing so, you'll gain access to all of our episodes, the ability to ask follow-up questions, and we'll become part of an exclusive community that makes this show possible. I hope you'll make the decision to join us today. We talk about what we want to talk about, and we don't talk about the broad range of things that we may actually experience. And so you have yourself, the enemy, terrain, and chance that all influence what it is you can and can't do in war. And so your opinion is only one-fourth of that pie chart. And what percentage of that fourth? I think it just depends on the power of the other components within that pie chart. Getting over these institutional biases and the, the traditionalist bias that affects a lot of military thinking is, is another hurdle that I think collectively we need to get over in order to maintain competitive advantage in war and warfare. If you accept the fact that what you've been taught and told, essentially your entire life may not necessarily be accurate or 100% true, uh, then you can really start to analyze things more broadly and look for realistic solutions to problems. My guest today is Amos Fox, who is an officer in the U.S. Army with more than 24 years of service in uniform. Amos is currently pursuing a PhD in international relations from the University of Reading, where he's focusing on the intersection of power, time, and social relationships within proxy wars. Amos is also a graduate of the U.S. Army's School of Advanced Military Studies, where he was awarded the school's top honor, the Tom Feltz Leadership Award, in 2017. Amos has written extensively on conflict over the past decade, producing over 60 publications. His work is unemotional and focuses on causal mechanisms to explain patterns in armed conflict. Much of Amos's current writing addresses proxy war, land warfare, the Russo-Ukrainian war, and military thinking. He has previously appeared on Russi's Western Way of War podcast, the This Means War podcast, and the History Hit podcast. He has also presented at Harvard Law School, Texas Tech University, and many other academic settings. I'm sure Amos will reiterate this point, but as he is a currently serving officer in the US Army, it's important to stress that this conversation represents his own views and does not represent in any way the views of the US Department of Defense, the Department of the Army, or any other agency of the US government. Amos joins me today to discuss some of his views on the state of Western military thinking, particularly our potential over-reliance on the concept of maneuver warfare. Amos, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Hey, Maz. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to, to sit down and talk with you today. And uh, I really appreciate, the, uh, again, the opportunity. And again, just uh, as you said, uh, my, my opinions expressed here are my own and uh, are not reflective in any way, shape, or form of the U.S. Army or, or the U.S. government at all. Uh, it's just, uh, just me and uh, my, my personal opinions here. Fantastic, and uh, and uh, as I've uh, come to learn uh, since the start of the podcast, those are absolutely the best. But before we get to the meaty subject of strategy and war, maybe we can find out a little bit about you and your background. So firstly, why did you join the Army in the first place nearly a quarter of a century ago, and what motivated your journey into academia subsequently uh, and dedicating so much of your time to thinking about war? 
so I originally joined uh, the Army coming out of high school. I was uh, uh, I joined the uh, the National Guard in Indiana uh, to help pay for school uh, originally uh, to help pay for college because mm-hmm. I didn't uh, I didn't come from from very uh, significant means, and so uh, I did that mm-hmm. as a way to help pay for college. And then while I was in college, everything got uh, underway with uh, 9/11. So I started college in '99. Mm. Uh, and I joined the Guard in 1999, and then 9/11 happened right. while I was in the Guard, and I decided, uh, you know, like uh, that line at the beginning of the movie of Patton, where, you know, Patton says, you know, he's he's addressing the audience at the beginning of the movie, and he says something to the effect of, you know, when you're sitting down with your grandkid by your fireplace, and he asks you what you did in the Great mm. World War II, uh, you don't want to tell him that you shoveled crap in Louisiana. And so I had, a, I had a similar feeling about myself. I said, you know, with these, mm-hmm. this war in Iraq and this war in Afghanistan going on, um, I don't want to sit back and say that I didn't do my part. And so I got into uh, to ROTC, uh, the Reserve Officer Training Corps uh, program at the, the school I went to. I went to uh, Indiana University in Indianapolis, uh, and I got into that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got a commission. I was only going to do three years and then get back out because at that time I was uh, – Dead set on being a football coach, a college football coach. I actually had my my dream job lined up, <laughs> not even lined up. I already, I already had it. I was an assistant football oh, coach wow. at uh, Butler University while I was finishing up school. Uh, but I put that aside and I decided to get uh, a commission, and so I commissioned into the army. And uh, I was going to do three years at a three-year contract, and uh, I was going to just go uh, deploy, you know, go to Iraq or Afghanistan, whichever the case may be at the time, Iraq was the big hot thing, mm. uh, cause this was 2005. Mm, mm-hmm. And so, uh, uh, I got, you know, I, I got commissioned. I went to Fort Hood, uh, started my career there with the fourth infantry division, uh, deployed to, uh, to Iraq almost right after I got to Fort Hood mm. and, uh, deployed with the division for a year. We were at, uh, Cal, Fob Cal Sioux in the hospital in the Skanderia area, about 30 miles south of Baghdad. And mm. it was, uh, a wild and crazy year. Uh, the book Blackhearts. Uh, we shared a boundary with that unit, so oh, right. a lot of the stories that yeah, a lot of the stories that occurred in that book, like I remember happening uh, in real time because we were, you know, we shared that that boundary. We're just to the mm. south of those guys. Mm. And then you know things things change and uh, life just happens, and you realize you somewhat enjoy uh, soldiering and doing doing all that. And so what was supposed to be three years has now turned into uh, a full-blown career. And I'm um, at the end of my career. I'll retire in about a year and a half. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah. Is that a compulsory thing that you that you have to retire because of the, the time you've served or, or something? No, 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 no. I'm just going to go ahead and uh, – Oh, that's a choice. And, uh, do, yeah, do something else. Mm-hmm. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna get into academia mm-hmm. um, and, and, and go that route, and so that goes to to the PhD. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do that, and as part of that, I I think I've always approached being a, an officer in the army from the lens of uh, of a football coach, honestly. Mm. And so football coaches don't look at things as they are and accept them as they are. They always look for the how and the why, mm. and so uh, is. You know, you mentioned the 60-something publications that I've done. I think a lot of that is because I always look for the how and the why, and I haven't just taken what is, uh, you know, in in doctrine or in uh, culturally accepted thinking is the is as the norm. I've always said, you know, like, hey, why is this the way that it is? Where did mm. it come from? Mm. And I've always tried to go back and 
understand the start point to see where we are and see why things have, you know, either evolved or not evolved based off that line of logic. And it goes back to that, you know, as a football coach, you sit down on uh, on Sunday and you you tear apart the game film for the team that you're going to play that following weekend. Mm-hmm. And then uh, throughout the week, you're continually analyzing both them and yourself and saying, is what I'm doing going to work? And if not, why not? And then what do I need to do differently? And so that frame of mind has always been how I've approached um, my job and just approached thinking about armed conflict in general. And mm-hmm. so uh, when I, when I see things that I don't think necessarily make sense, uh, I, I stop and question it and try and understand and find, you know, the how and the why, why is it doing this? Why do we say what we say? Mm-hmm. Why do we think what we think? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's been the, you know, the basis of the genesis of, my outlook on thinking about armed conflict mm. and it's uh, formed uh, basically how I've done things over the course of my my time looking at war and warfare and uh, and then just big picture like I think like a lot of folks that are in the military I just enjoy studying uh, war you know I've always like as a little kid I you know I love the movie Patton when I was a mm, little kid mm, mm, mm. you know I grew up grew up doing that and reading the books and all that stuff. And so it's been a, not a, you know, I always wanted to be a soldier coming along too, but I also just always enjoyed thinking about, um, you know, armed conflict in general and the Mm. evolution of military thought to me has always been fascinating. Mm, mm. Some of my friends will tell you like my, my, my dirty little secret is that I've always wanted to be, uh, the next Liddell Hart Mm, and, mm. uh, I've approached uh, I've approached things from that standpoint. You know, Liddell Hart minus the uh, the baggage that comes along with him. I would say JSC Fuller, but JSC Fuller has way more baggage mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. than Liddell Hart. But anyway, that's uh, that's basically the the genesis of you know where I started to where I am today. And I wonder, you made reference to your immediate deployment to Iraq post effectively training or becoming commissioned. How has that experience? Firstly, what was that experience like? Is set against what you were taught, uh, and how has that initial experience of war, warfare, military thinking shaped your, I guess, what turned out to be quite a, quite a, quite a, uh, uh, an enduring career, uh, and one that's revolved around a lot of this kind of how and why thinking. Yeah. Uh, so when I got to Fort Hood, we, you know, I got there in August. Uh, right as like Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, mm. like the weekend, the day that I showed up at Fort Hood. And so that created a bunch of chaos because a lot of units from Fort Hood had to go down and help out. Mm. So anyway, like we, that, that all happened and it was somewhat chaotic there at Fort Hood. And then we, uh, we ended up deploying in November uh, of 2005. And so we deployed to, uh, like I said, uh, the Fob Kalsu, Iskandaria and Hoswa area. And it was relatively it was relatively peaceful, hmm. um, I'd say, to a degree, in the area that we were in initially. We had replaced the National Guard unit out of Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And so it was peaceful, but then uh, the the mosque in Samara was blown up. Uh, I forget the exact date. Mm-hmm. But basically, once that happened, once we went from the winter of 05 into like the beginning of 06, and then the mosque was bombed in Samara. You, you could feel the wheels fall off the wagon. Right. And it went from like every now and then you'd, you'd make contact with an enemy to almost every day you would make contact with an enemy. enemy. And uh, 
it was very much like um, drive around and get blown up. Mm. That was basically every day. Mm. And it was always, you know, before you'd roll out, you'd bargain with yourself. Like, what am I okay losing today? Mm. You know, like, oh, I think I could handle not, you know, making it back without a leg. And, uh, and so it was, uh, it was, a, it was just a bad time to be there because that's really when, you know, the, the, the insurgency was out of control and we were struggling, Col- the collective, we were struggling mm-hmm. with how to address mm-hmm. the insurgency. I remember, uh, they had just started the Taji, the coin Academy of at Taji, uh, shortly before we got there. And, uh, you know, a company commander had to go to that and came back and he had some some cool ideas, but like nobody had trained for it because we had essentially trained up. And I caught, I didn't even, I caught, I didn't catch most of the train up hmm. before we deployed because I showed up so early <laughs> to the deployment. But, oh, yeah. you know, I showed up, uh, when I showed up, we went out and shot Bradley gunnery, you hmm. know, right before we left. And uh, so we, you know, when we got there, we were driving around our tanks at Bradley's. And uh, meanwhile, there's an insurgency going and you know, they were still, you know, they were targeting our, our tanks and our Bradleys, and then we would uh, we ended up transitioning to uh, primarily being a Humvee based force mm. uh, over the course of that year. And um, and wh- why know, is that for, for, was... for many in the audience that might not uh, necessarily make sense? So maybe just uh, just clarify why you made that transition from from uh, something like a Bradley to a Humvee. Yeah. So in, in line with the counterinsurgency strategy, mm-hmm. we we're trying to be less. Uh, we we're trying to present a less combative appearance mm-hmm. or posture. And also at the same time, it also forced us to be less combative because you're in a Humvee, hmm. you know, you've got, you know, 50 cal or some sort of lower, you know, lower type of machine gun on there versus, you know, 120 millimeter main hmm. gun or hmm. a 25 millimeter gun. And so if you did react to something in a Humvee, you're causing far less damage than, than you would if you were in a hmm. tank or a Bradley. Hmm. And then on top of that too, like the, uh, the little things that folks don't necessarily appreciate the, you know, the infrastructure there. Uh, in that area, and I think generally in, in most of the country, was fairly rudimentary in, in a lot of places. And so power lines, for instance, would hang very low uh, down over the street. Mm-hmm. And so um, if you're rolling around with a Bradley, which actually sits pretty high, mm-hmm. in many cases you'd be yanking down power lines yeah. and then you'd be knocking the power out in the neighborhoods when you know they didn't get a lot of power to begin with because mm-hmm. of the way their uh, power grid ran. And so it was really just uh, us trying to embrace the counterinsurgency uh strategy that was that was implemented around that time mm. uh and present a uh, a less a less combative you know kind of posture presence yeah towards, yeah yeah so yeah towards the local population there yeah okay that's really interesting i mean i um, and, and i suspect uh, how, how how do you think how successful were you and I, and this is this is not a loaded question uh, uh, in any way yeah. i'm not i'm not setting a trap i'm more trying to the reason i'm asking that is because i think in, in my view, this adds to the conversation we're about to have, and that is uh, the kind yeah. of uh, ha- how our thinking uh, about war translates to the situation on the ground, or how does it how it applies to the situation on the ground. Yeah, so there was a huge. Uh, so the bottom line answer to that question is, I said I, I think we weren't all that successful. But again, we were. You know, again, how does that fit within the higher? you know, hierarchy of where you fit during that time, you know? Um, And so like for us, like it, things were calm, somewhat, somewhat calm and cool when we first got there. And by the time we left, I mean, we had a, uh, a guy in my company was killed the night before he flew home uh, Mm. right at the end of the deployment. Mm. And so that was the last guy that we lost. And that was, 
indicative of how that deployment went. Mm, like mm, mm. up to the very end, we were, we were taking it on the chin. And so, you know, that's not to say that we didn't do our best and try to uh, try and do things the way that we should have been doing it. Cause I think we were, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, like, uh, and this will go into what we talk about later. Like the way you want things to go mm. is only like a portion of the equation. Mm. And uh, there are many other factors that come into play that, often undercut and sub-optimize what it is you're trying to do. And so I can tell you, like, just on, like, from an individual standpoint, like, tons of great effort on our part. Guys really tried and cared and whatnot. But by the end of it, it was, you know, like, you're in the same boat everybody else was when they were going home. You, you said you did great, you know, but, like, when we left, a lot of the people that we had put into power, locals that we had put into power were knocked off. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the unit that comes in behind you, and it's the same way when we got there, you know, the, hmm. the unit you replaced was awful. And then you did a great job. And then when you leave the same, the same the unit that replaces yeah. you says the same thing, yeah. you know, like, Oh, these guys are horrible, but yeah. we've done a great job. Yeah. And we've, we've turned the corner, yeah. you know? And so, Oh, that resonates. I'm not gonna, <laughs> yeah. 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 And yeah. that's, uh, that, and that's know. shaped, that's shaped my outlook on a lot of, uh, a lot of things too. Like, it doesn't matter what you want to do necessarily. And you can go out and try and do what you want to do all day long, but, there are so many other factors that interfere that it, uh, mm. um, you, you just have to be careful about that and not be emotional about what it is you've done and what it is you want to do because in many cases you can end up disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, that, I, I guess that's a wonderful pivot. And, and just to, I guess, reiterate, reiterate that point, uh, you know, it's the environment that will in many ways impact a, your behavior, but also the outcomes, uh, ultimately. Yeah. So just taking that example, and, and I really, that, that really spoke to me when you said why you shifted from Bradley's to Humvee's, not only because, you know, the, 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 the posture you presented, but also your own behavior. Uh, because if you, you, you know, you use the tools you've got, if you've got, if you're behind uh, some significant armor and you've got a pretty big cannon to, to, to do the work, dirty work for you, why wouldn't you use it? Uh, as opposed to if you limit yourself with the type of platforms you have available, uh, then there's only a certain amount of kind of damage you can do. Uh, and I guess that applies in uh, in everything else. It's it's not necessarily what you intended to do, but it's what the tools you've got, what the environment presents, uh, and then, you know, what do you make of that? Uh, which, uh, which, which I think is a real telling, uh, really important aspect uh, of war that's, uh, that's really discussed, but it's something I think you really touch on. Uh, but maybe it's a good way to pivot to the, the meat of our discussion, and that is maneuver warfare. Uh, because and the reason I wanted to talk to you about maneuver warfare because as a as somebody in the Australian Army, uh, we pride ourselves on the fact that we embrace the maneuverist approach, uh, and maneuver is our is the underpinning principle uh, of how Australia chooses uh, to fight wars. Uh, in many ways, that's because we are small, uh, and we in many ways have to really think about war uh, where we use uh, our strengths against the enemy's weaknesses. But perhaps before we delve too deeply into that, uh, I might ask you to firstly define maneuver warfare for us and explain to what extent it's been adopted by, uh, and here I'm going to use Western militaries uh, because those are the ones yeah. that uh, certainly I'm more familiar with, uh, but also I suspect uh, many in my audience. Yeah, so maneuver warfare, again, depending on what you're, you know, what, what you're going with is your governing uh, definition. Mm. Uh, there, there are a couple different definitions. One of one of the most common is essentially the combination of fire and movement in pursuit of uh, some sort of tactical objective. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also uh, one of my favorite theorists. Uh, I got to hear him speak. Uh, he actually addressed a, a group of people uh, that I was with. 
Uh, he said that maneuver is the pursuit of advantage in warfare. And uh, the problem that I that I think uh, exists with a lot of those definitions is that, you know, the combination of fire mo uh, movement in pursuit of an objective is uh, inherent in anything that you do. And the same thing, too, with advantage. You know, maneuver mm -hmm. is not doesn't have a proprietary ownership mm -hmm. over the pursuit or the, you know, the leveraging of advantage. Everybody tries to use advantage. You know, if, if your advantage is mass and more numbers, you may like use that as, as, as a tool of advantage. And mm. so, uh, but the idea I think in many cases has been uh, corrupted over time. And there's been a lot of writing and a lot of theorists that have, that have, elevated it to some false sense of, uh, uh, you know, high mindedness. Like if mm -hmm. you, if you're a maneuverist and I'm using air quotes when I say maneuverist, because mm -hmm. I don't think that's a thing, but if you're a maneuverist, you're somehow an enlightened, uh, thinker or an enlightened leader, uh, when it comes to maneuver warfare. And it's, you know, at this point, it's essentially like at the top of all Western militaries, right? Mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the Australian army certainly, uh, the British Army as well. Mm -hmm. It's all over the uh, when you look at their doctrine, maneuverist mm -hmm. approach is central to all of all of their land warfare doctrine. Mm -hmm. Same thing too. And interestingly, like I had published a paper in Rusi this uh, in 2022 called the the death of maneuver, mm -hmm. and it's with a question mark, not an exclamation mark. So it was a question that I sought to answer mm -hmm. based off mm -hmm. listening to uh, Peter, Peter Roberts and uh, Anthony King talk about maneuver on on Peter Roberts's podcast. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I went and I was like, all right, let's look at this, because it goes back. I would published a paper in 2017 about uh, maneuver, and at the time I thought, you know, it was maneuver wasn't wasn't the only thing. There was, you know, uh, essentially maneuver position and attritional warfare that you uh, would cycle through. And as I've, as I've continued to research and think and reflect and, and watch real-world situations, I don't even think that that's necessarily an accurate thing. I don't think... Attrition, for one thing, is a is a form of warfare because if you if, if I say show me attrition tactics tactics what do you what it you know what are they hmm. that there really isn't anything because what you really have in any form of fighting is varying degrees of contact right physical contact or you know fire contact based off fire hmm. um, and so what you're really talking about is how much how much you're trying to move relative to the opponent mm -hmm. versus how much you're trying to uh, direct fire straight on the opponent. And so I think that the whole maneuver is better than anything else or attrition is some sort of like taboo thing mm -hmm. or, you know, when you mentioned positional warfare, nobody even knows what that means anymore. Yeah, well, that, yeah, uh, I, but, yeah that's right. Well, I've never been taught it. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure unless uh, some of my yeah, instructors will, uh, will, will castigate me for that, but I, I don't recall it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of the problem is we don't. So again, this goes back to what I mentioned before. When we talk about, we talk about what we want to talk about, and we don't talk about the the broad range of things that we may actually experience. For instance, in Iraq, why did we, the collective we, you know, the West mm -hmm, that was mm -hmm. over there working together, why did we struggle when things went sideways after the fall of uh, the Iraqi army? Well, it's because we have very limited scope uh, in terms of doctrine, right? Our doctrine is, you know, it just talks about maneuver. It doesn't talk about anything else, mm. generally speaking. That's interesting. And so... Yeah. 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 When you only have one lexicon and you only have one toolkit and you only have one model, when you experience something that doesn't perfectly fit within that model, it, you experience chaos and you're like, what is going on? How do we handle this problem? Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that gets to part of it, like the discussion on sieges, you know, like 
you may not like the word siege. You may not want to talk about sieges, but sieges are reality, especially today. Like mm. it, when you look across the span of, you know, post-Cold War uh, conflicts, sieges are the recurring theme that pops up everywhere in every conflict multiple times, right? Mm. And so if you flip open a, any kind of doctrinal publication, though, and you try and find the word siege, and again, I've not deep-dived on Australian doctrine, but I've looked at U.S. Mm-hmm. doctrine, I've looked at the uh, British doctrine, I've looked at NATO doctrine, I've looked at the French doctrine, mm. and uh, sieges like are almost not mentioned at all. Mm. And mm-hmm. when it is mentioned, it's 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 in a, in a bad way, like you failed and you find yourself besieged, yeah. you know, or somebody, you know, the, it's something the bad guys do. It's the same thing with proxies. If you re- uh, read most Western doctrine, it's it's written the same way. Proxy, mm. uh, the use of proxies is something the bad guys you do, and it's not something we do. Oh, that's you so know, we rely on partners. That's so interesting. And so again, like you have this very very limited lexicon uh, because you're speaking out of preference and idealism as opposed to reality. And so I personally think that like that's something that's really missing uh, today when we. It, and a lot of the literature, but then also in just the way that Western militaries speak and think about things. Um, you know, if you if you go up to your random, you know, person in the military and you say, talk to me about land warfare, mm. the number of times maneuver comes out mm. versus any other descriptive word for how to fight is astronomical, right? And yeah. it's because they don't have another word. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, tell me another word that explains what you're doing, because like what I see you doing isn't maneuver. So what is it that you're doing? Mm, you know, mm, mm, and, uh, you know, they'll throw out things like, Oh, I'm maneuvering to a position of advantage to do, you know, X, Y, or Z. And so, you know, like that, like, Oh, so essentially you're using positional warfare, right? Mm. If you're using tactics and movement to lure people in and out of places of advantageous position to, you know, either trap them or pull them out of somewhere that they've occupied that is, uh, you know, advantageous for them to stay in. That mm. You're using positional warfare, you know, and yeah. positional tactics. Yeah. And so uh, that really seems to be, I think, a problem. And it's it's uh, it'll continue to be a problem. We we I think collectively we need to think broader and think not about idealistic uh, preferences for what we want war to be and warfare to be, but we need to think and speak in language that is uh, that refle- reflects reality. And I think that that's. That's something that's really missing today, mm, uh, and mm. both you know Western military thought and you know Western military doctrine. Mm, mm. I wonder if that's a, to what extent do you think that's uh, perhaps an issue of I guess definitions as well? Uh, because when you were talking about you know defining how you define maneuver, it, it's fire and movement, which to me is, seems like it's rather kind of kinetic and, and violent uh, means. Whereas in the certainly in the Australian context, we try to make maneuver uh, something that gives you the option to be you know kinetic and non-kinetic or violent and non-violent uh and it's it, the way it's postured in our doctrine is that it's about maneuvering the mind so it's it's really attacking the kind of uh, uh the, the the capacity to react off an enemy and that might even include attrition uh so by our doctrine attrition falls inside of maneuver maneuver is the kind of overarching concept uh of maneuvering around the battle space uh in such a way that you are as efficient as possible uh, using the minimum amount of resources to achieve the maximum gain by targeting uh, the weaknesses or, 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 I guess, the critical vulnerabilities of an enemy, which, in theory at least, uh, is designed to uh, incapacitate the mental capacity of an enemy or an, or an opponent uh, to, I guess, defeat their will to fight uh, without necessarily uh, degrading or, or destroying 
uh, their physical components, uh, you know, whether that's equipment or personnel, um, which, again, sounds neat in theory, but I just wonder whether that is a definitional issue and whether that is a similar definition that you come across uh, in the US, British, uh, French and NATO doctrine uh, and whether Australia might be different in, in, in this sense, at least the way we approach this particular problem. Yeah, no, we, uh, so the, the focus on uh, the cognitive aspect of, of things also figure, uh, factors heavily into uh, discussions of maneuver as well as the uh, uh, the, the will, sorry, yeah, I went the, brain dead for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so those two things, like, those are good ideas, but in reality, again, like, what does that even mean? You know, like, show me how that actually works. And I think you can look at, like, what's going on in, in Russia or Ukraine with, with the conflict between Russia and Ukraine right now. Mm-hmm. Like, how is will being affected? Um, because I'm sure, like, will, morale cognitive ability right now on the Russians part is very, you know, it's been impacted exponentially um, in a negative way mm. as a result of, you know, stalwart Ukrainian uh, operations mm. and, and they've done terrific, but like, you know, it's, it's almost been a year now mm. where the Russians are still uh, just throwing bodies at the problem. Mm. And I'm clearly that's, that's a bit, you know, lazy uh, language there. Cause yes, yeah, but it's but, but it's, know, but it's absolutely accurate. Be, but it's absolutely accurate. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But with, you know, if if 120,000 casualties or 120,000 killed in action is any indication of how things are going, clearly, like hmm. that's not having a cognitive effect. And so, you know, if you can't, if killing uh, that many people or inflicting that many casualties isn't triggering some sort of cognitive effect or some sort of negative impact on Russian will, you know, I, w- I would be hard pressed to believe that like some big death left hook uh, mm. where you get in somebody's rear is going to make them say, oh man, mm. you got mm. to my rear, I give up, you know. But, like, but, I don't, but someone, I someone, think, someone might, in defense of that, someone might say, well, maybe we just haven't, or Ukraine maybe just hasn't worked out what the actual critical vulnerability of, uh, of Russia is. In other words, you know, yeah. manpower might but not be a vulnerability. That, yeah, and that's uh, that's always you know, there's always the I'm going to slip out from under your, you know, your answer type mm-hmm. counter answer, mm-hmm. you know. And so that's this is part of the problem because like when I have this discussion with people, they'll always say, well, you know, it's a it's a philosophy. Maneuver yeah. is more a philosophy than a set of tactics. And I'm like, well, philosophies don't win wars, man. So yeah, yeah, like yeah. that's cool, but like let if that's the case, throw it out because why are we even talking about it then? You know, yeah. like. Um, and so I just think that that's something that's, and going back to your or your comment on definitions, I think that that's part of the problem mm-hmm. too, is that we use the word maneuver to mean everything. And by yeah. it being everything, it, it means nothing, you know? And so like, just when you were giving that, that Australian definition, you used it in about three different uh, instances where it means three different things. Like at one point it meant just moving, you know, from mm. A to B. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you meant it in like the actual like maneuver fighting sense of the word. And then you meant it, uh, you said it in another, uh, mm-hmm, another mm-hmm, form. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so like, yeah, maneuvering the mind. Yeah, that, yeah. 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 You're right. And That's with the that, absolute it, three. Yeah. You know, it completely waters it down. And what does it mean? It doesn't mean anything, mm. you know, and it's the same thing too. Like anytime you look at the, you know, like a concept of operation, mm. you know, task to maneuver units, what are maneuver units? You know what I mean? Like, why, you know, you've baked in the solution to the question, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, like, sometimes, you know, like, that's not a maneuver unit. It's just a battering ram because it's got to go be a battering ram. Or it is or it is a sprinting thing that just darts around the end, you know? Mm. And so I just think that there's a lot of 
like I love Liddell Hart, like we were talking mm. uh, before we got going here, you know, and I think a lot of, you know, his indirect approach idea was, uh, you know, kind of bastardized and taken out of context in many regards. Maybe and just so, give, a, again, many of my audience might not be familiar with Liddell, Liddell Hart. So maybe just uh, give us a, a quick uh, uh, kind of rundown on, on, on who he is and, and why the relevance. Yeah, so Liddell Hart, so he's a 20th century British uh, military theorist. He started off as a, an officer in the British Army in the First World War and got uh, got injured and medically retired after the First World War. And uh, he basically was um, frustrated with the state of military thinking, the British military coming out of the war. Mm-hmm. And uh, he saw the butcher that happened at you know the Somme and all these other battlefields, Verdun and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And he said, there's got to be a better way. And so he also was essentially the, uh, the understudy of J.C. Fuller, who was another British military theorist, mm-hmm. ended up retiring as a major general from the British, uh, from the British Army. Uh, but uh, Liddell Hart went on to essentially, he got out, he retired as a captain, but he became known as the captain that advised generals mm-hmm. because uh, his thinking was so good and so ahead of its time uh, that he was brought in. And he was uh, very influential within the British military and just, you know, military thinking in general. And mm. him and J.F.C. Fuller were early advocates of the tank mm. uh, and how uh, tanks could uh, break the stalemate of trench warfare and what was seen in the First World War. Mm. And so he became a, a huge proponent of that. And then just over the course of his life, he published a, a significant amount of work, both books and papers and then just uh, presentations and whatnot. Mm. on uh, on military thinking and so for me personally he's one of my favorite theorists because he really does take a critical look and there are no sacred cows with him one of my favorite lines that i ever read uh, is from his book uh, the ghost of napoleon which was published in 1926 mm. and i actually have a first edition copy on my bookshelf <laughs> uh, here at my house prized possession i had to pay quite a bit of money and yeah. get it shipped from uh shipped from london but yeah, yeah he says in there you know talking talking there's no sacred cow that book is uh, his analysis of Napoleonic warfare, and he takes Clausewitz to task in the book, and that's mm. part of the reason a lot of at least U.S. Uh, thinkers, military thinkers, don't like him is because he doesn't hold Clausewitz in some sort of uh, you know fancy light. Yeah. He, he says that uh, there was a lot of shortcomings with his thinking, and one of the comments that uh, Little Hart has in The Ghost of Napoleon, which I think, which is just terrific. Uh, just based off the prose itself, and I'm paraphrasing, but I'm pretty close to the accurate mm-hmm. quote here, was uh, he said, you know, coming out of the First World War, he said that the generals of World War One were drunk on the blood-red wine of Clausewitzian growth. Huh. And I always thought that that was just the most wow. beautiful line, mm. uh, and also just cut straight to the heart. And, uh, you know, regardless of your feelings about Clausewitz or not, mm-hmm. it's still a great line. But anyway, that's yeah, that's what Elhard. He's uh, the uh, I believe the uh, there's a at King's College in London too. They've they've got a a, a department uh, named after him there. And then he was also Michael Howard from uh, the UK. Mm-hmm. He was like Michael Howard's mentor uh, when he was coming up too, and mm-hmm. and helped shape Michael Howard's mind and his approach to uh, the study of the study of war. Yeah, and and I think he was uh, he was one of the thinkers behind the idea of uh, combined arms warfare in general. I think you you made that point yeah. about uh, how to use tanks uh, with infantry and uh, you know supported by well rudimentary aviation at the time. But certainly, uh, if if my memory serves, that was uh, that was also attributed to uh, to Liddell as well. Uh, so uh, certainly, uh, yeah. uh, and also a pragmatic thinker, uh, as as I think you alluded to, and, and and perhaps maybe that's a question. Then is that this is something that I uh, that that strikes me as as possible uh, that 
we rely on this idea of maneuver because it gives the impression that we can fight war precisely, efficiently, cleanly, I guess, and, and perhaps that's its appeal. What do you think about that? Yeah, so that goes back to Lionel Hart as well. You know, his, the whole idea behind his indirect uh, approach, which is outlined in several different things that he's published, but uh, primarily in his book, Strategy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he, his idea of the indirect approach is essentially what we alluded to earlier, where you use movement to get to the enemy's rear mm-hmm. to induce cognitive paralysis in them so that they essentially give up. And, uh, you know, and he also said in that in, in that book that... Uh, Often the longest route is the quickest way home, and he was referring to that, the idea of the indirect approach and maneuver and and, and not striking straight into the enemy, but taking the long way around it. Mm. Um, And so, what was I forgot to. You no, got no. Off track. What's the question part of that again? <laughs> no, no. I, I was just asking whether whether kind of our, our the allure uh, of maneuver is oh, it's yeah. its promise of being clean and efficient because it, it it just reads so neatly. I mean, I'm going to use my small forces to uh, target the enemy's critical vulnerabilities to undermine his critical requirements, to therefore undermine his center of gravity, uh, and therefore you know which is arguably you know the locality uh or or uh, I, I, I don't know don't know exactly how uh, how you define uh center of gravity in the u.s context but for yeah. us it's kind of the capability characteristic or locality from which a particular force will draw its will to fight uh, and its uh, freedom of action which if you're you know if you if, it looks neat theoretically right if you if i hit these vulnerabilities yeah. it kind of cascades upwards uh, and therefore denies the enemy freedom of maneuver or freedom of action uh, and undermines his uh, will to fight. Now, my question to you is then, is that a pipe dream? Uh, and are we kind of uh, swallowing a nice marketing message because uh, to give us the idea that war can somehow be efficient and clean? Uh, and I think what you said about Liddell is that war is anything but, uh, and which is what you, I think the quote you used about the generals uh, being drunk uh, on Clausewitz, who of course is the father of, of the center, center of gravity construct. Uh, I wonder if there's a link there, that it's, uh, you know, war is not that clean. You can't just go and uh, think that you can uh, hit these finite points uh, and the enemy will crumble. It very rarely, if ever, happens that way. Yeah, that, there's, there's uh, many, many layers, I think, to this question, right? And so, like the maneuver point, I think if you go back to Napoleon, there's there's an, a fascinating, the Ulm Austerlitz campaign is a fascinating dichotomy between this idea of clean maneuver and then just bludgeoning attrition, attrition fighting yeah. and positional fighting, hmm. you know, because at Ulm, you know, was that Marshal DeVoe uh, encircles, you know, 30,000 Austrians at, uh, uh, I forget the name of the forest right now, right? Mm-hmm. But it was like the definition of maneuver, right? You know, and then Fast forward to uh, the Pratts and Heights, you know, Napoleon tricks, uses position essentially to trick the Russians into attacking the Heights. And then he just slams right into them. And then I think DeVoe again comes and doesn't save the day, but helps augment and seal the victory there at Austerlitz. Mm-hmm. And so you have like this, this dichotomy between like the two ends of the spectrum um, that's really useful when you think about it. And then if you fast forward to what Liddell, the problem Liddell Hart was trying to solve was he was trying to solve that, that bloody antiseptic thing. And so even though there's a strong vein of like reality to what Liddell Hart writes and says, um, in many cases too, there's, there's an aspirational aspect to it. But I think clouds 
the ideas. And so personally, I don't think you can get around, you know, Liddell Hart was trying to inject this, uh, this clean antiseptic idea of this. We can't have more songs. We can't have more Verdun's. We can't have more of these, you know, whatever number of, mm, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. uh, batters, battles of Ypres that existed, you know, mm. uh, we can't keep having these. And so he developed this idea that I don't think necessarily matches reality. You know, like I don't think that you can, induce cognitive paralysis in the armies that are the size that they are today. Mm. And the other aspect of this that I think folks forget. So we're, we're talking about, cause really like these terms that we're using are essentially carryovers from the Napoleonic warfare. But the problem is warfare today is fundamentally different in that, you know, back then the heads of state generally led their armies in the field. And if it wasn't the head of state, it was like mm. his brother or, mm. you know, mm. somebody mm. in that line. And so armies weren't um, interconnected systems that were networked, you know, to their national industry and all these mm, other mm, things. Mm, 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 it mm. was just a thing in the field. And so if you could encircle it and cut it off, you probably could defeat it. Mm. If you could go out and inflict enough damage on the force while the head of state is sitting there on his horse, mm. you're going to induce this cognitive effect on the policymaker you know, mm, and so mm. we've taken these terms and these ideas because centers of gravity is something that I don't think is a thing either uh, for that for that very reason. Because, you know, in the past, when this term was developed, Clausewitz was talking about essentially mechanical um, systems. If you'd like to hear the rest of this episode and gain access to all of the episodes of The Voices of War, simply become a subscriber using the link in the show notes. As you know, I will not feature any ads on the show, which is made possible solely through the support of our subscribers. If you find value in the content, you can become one now.